0: Let's stand together, brothers and sisters, for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading from verse 26 of chapter 14 all the way through to verse 35 of chapter 15. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe so god who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the holy spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them purifying their hearts by faith now therefore why do you test god by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear but we believe that through the grace of the lord jesus christ we shall be saved in the same manner as they Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but... That we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren. To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying... You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. That you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So, when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So my plan is to have four sermons on this section of the book of Acts. You'll see today's sermon there, verses 1 through 6, Jerusalem Council Origins. We'll look at that today. A wise local church deals with heresy. That's what today's sermon is. Uh, Next week I plan for us to look at uh, Galatians and the Jerusalem Council controversy and go through Galatians and see uh, the comments there from the divine comments <clears throat> Divinely inspired comments from Paul there to those churches in southern Galatia that will provide insight for us into this heresy. And then we'll move on to the next section of Acts 15. the Jerusalem Council of judges and we'll see how the regional church settles, settles the matter. We'll look at how they deliberate and what the nature of this deliberation included. And then verses 22 through 31 they have their decree. And we'll look at how the original church communicates clearly. And this serves as an example of the pillar and ground that is the church, the pillar and ground of truth in action in the world. You know, brothers and sisters, one thing about this section that we can discuss is is conflict within God's church. It's a central aspect of this particular aspect of Scripture. Commentary says, even when things go on very smoothly and pleasantly, in a state or in a church, it is folly to be secure and to think the mountains stand strong and cannot be moved. If you think about it, it's been a a very sweet time for Paul and for Barnabas and the church at Antioch. They've seen the Lord's work. He called forth these missionaries, sent them out, brought them home with this good report of so many miracles done in so many churches. It was a wonderful time of growth and uh, basking in the power of God together. Going on in the commentary. Some uneasiness or other will arise, which is not foreseen, cannot be prevented, but must be prepared for. If ever there was a heaven upon earth, surely it was in the church at Antioch at this time, when there were so many excellent ministers there, and blessed Paul, blessed Paul among them, building up that church in her most holy faith. But here we have their peace disturbed and differences arising. So that's one of the key points of this section is that we need to expect divisions to occur in fact they must occur we're told in scripture first Corinthians 11 now in giving these instructions I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse for first of all when you come together as a church I hear that there are divisions among you and in part I believe it for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you So we should expect divisions. We should expect conflict to occur. And one of the reasons is, as we've just read there, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. In addition, conflict strengthens Christ's church. We've seen that in chapter 6 already. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution So prior to this, we see great health and vitality and beauty and power in the church there in Jerusalem. And then this division, internal threat to the church arises. Going on with Acts 6. Then the 12th summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So we've already seen this same pattern happen before, where the church was strengthened through the wise and patient response of the church to the division that was in place, they were wise enough to expect it, to be prepared for it, and to go through it properly. And by doing so, under the guidance of God, the church was strengthened. So we should expect divisions to occur, that those who are approved may be recognized among you, and we should expect divisions to occur in order for the church to be strengthened. As we look through this section today, we're going to see a number of themes stand out to us. I've mentioned some already. Divisions in the church will occur, but I want to say, and reoccur, and reoccur, and reoccur. There are tares amongst the wheat until the end, and there's immature and foolish wheat amongst us. Just take a look at your own heart. So there's going to be difficulties and conflicts and controversies all the way to the end. And really the big picture of this section as I was pondering and trying to consider it is reliance upon Christ and his word and his spirit and his church. Reliance upon Christ and his word and his spirit and his church. And what we'll see as each of these principles emerge is we're going to see some sort of fleshly thing that tries to replace it. So we want to rest in Christ's sovereign plan to purify his bride via conflict. We want to see the benefits of conflict as it occurs. We don't seek it out. We don't try to make it happen. Sometimes we have to have conflict. And this is in opposition to our fleshly tendency to be afraid and to use the arm of flesh in response to conflict. We need to see also that the church visible, the visible church is an institution for God's glory in the earth and one purpose is to be the pillar and the ground of truth. We see that today. Now this is in opposition to the individualism and the autonomous thinking that's present in today's world, just me and Jesus in my Bible in my living room or stories about that dad who thinks he's the pastor at his house and his family is his church and he's serving the Lord's Supper and baptizing his kids himself. That's the one extreme of individualism and autonomy. But on the other side, we're not going to get into the false teaching of Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy where the church itself is granted equal authority or greater authority than Scripture. But The church as an institution is a real thing and has real power and real purpose in the earth in regards to the Scripture and being the pillar and ground of truth In interpreting that for the world. And we see that today. And we see it throughout history. Next. Divisive men with heretical teaching. Must be publicly and courteously opposed. Divisive men with heretical teaching. Must be publicly and courteously opposed. This heretical teaching. When you say the word heresy. It means dividing. And ultimately it's something that can divide you from God. And that always will divide people from one another. And this is as opposed to avoidance or rudeness so on the one hand we can avoid the controversy and not go into it or if we do go into it we can do it arm of the flesh and not with courtesy and kindness like we see Barnabas and Paul doing today in order to oppose heresy we have to know the gospel we have to know the gospel of the bible we have to understand the things that come against it and this is in uh, this is contra biblical ignorance And it requires study of scripture and really knowledge also throughout church history to see the various heresies that come forth. Wise Christians will understand next the distinction between eternal moral law and transient ceremonial law. We're going to get into this when we go through the text. Wise Christians understand the distinction between eternal moral law and transient ceremonial law. It's very important to understand this. You'll be confused The other option is to be confused about what is going on and what is being debated. Next, wise local churches connect with and submit to the regional church. And this is not quite a call for Presbyterianism. um, But we do see wise local churches connect with and submit to the regional church, knowing that they need one another, especially to resolve conflict in a strengthening way. The church was strengthened through this because of the connection between the churches. And I know this isn't in your notes. This is in opposition to independent churches. So if you ever leave this church and go to another church by God's providence, and the word independent is in the name, you might want to think twice. Okay? Now there may be some exceptions to that. Uh, But no, we are not called to be independent local assemblies. Next wise Christians are encouraged and will be encouragers. Wise Christians will be encouraged and will be encouragers even and I can say especially in the midst of conflict. And this is in opposition to discouragement and despair. And and how can we have this? Because we look back and remember that Christ is purifying his bride. He's taking us through this. These things must happen and we go through it with reliance upon him. And his word, and his spirit, and his church, the way that he's put things together to resolve these kinds of difficulties. And for us to consider for ourselves, you know, because it's easy to think about others when we go through scripture, let's think about ourselves prideful use of scripture. Prideful use of scripture in, it leads to misuse of scripture, and it causes conflict, and it's associated with being foolish. And that's what we see happening. The scriptures are being misused by these folks who bring conflict into the church. Whereas on the other hand, humble submission to scripture leads to wisdom and unity in the church. So as we go through today's text in verse 1, we'll see the heresy, what it is and its source. We'll see strong opposition to heresy as it should be. We'll see how the church responds to this unresolved conflict. And we'll see that God gives encouragement during conflict. It's beautiful when they travel. And we'll see that the Jerusalem church lovingly receives these delegates from Antioch. We'll see the believing Pharisees restate the heresy in the context of hearing all this good news. And then the apostles and elders go ahead and convene the council. So through today, we're going to see the origins of the Jerusalem council. And we're going to learn from this. Verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Certain men. These men remain unnamed throughout the course of this conflict resolution process. It's worth noting they remain unnamed. So likely these men repented and were spared a higher level of rebuke that would have included publicly naming them in writing. And so while Paul, will see in Galatians, calls some of these people false brethren, it's clear that there's some in the group there that are pushing for this that are not to be included in that as false brethren. These folks came down from Judea, and we know in Galatians chapter 2 that they were from James. Paul writes in Galatians, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So this is Paul telling the folks in Galatia, in those churches that he's already planted churches in in South Galatia, telling Southern Galatia, telling them what has happened here that we've read about in in Acts chapter 15. And so we know that these folks came from James. We'll find later that there was no commandment given to them to say the things they said, but they did come from the Jerusalem church. But they were not told by James or anyone in Jerusalem to spread this heresy. That's clearly stated in the letter they write, since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law. To whom we gave no such commandment. So, we need to note that the Jerusalem decree that they give acknowledges these men did come from Jerusalem, but the men were not commanded by the Jerusalem church or anyone in it to speak the heresy. And I think it's also worth noting here that they don't make any reference to the concepts, direct references to the concepts of being saved or to sanctification. They make reference to simply. This statement, you must be circumcised and keep the law. And as we'll see, the initial statement is tied to justification, verse 1, whereas in verse 5 it appears as though it probably is related to sanctification, um, at least sanctification, but perhaps justification as well. But their wisdom in, in their reply is they're just responding to the whole thing. No, we didn't send anyone out to tell you that you must be circumcised and keep the law. So observe some things here. These men were unfaithful messengers. Be careful whom you choose to be messengers. These men abused the trust given to them by the Jerusalem church, misusing it to their own advantage to promote their own cause. And I'm I'm speaking now in terms of the false brethren that Paul describes in Galatians. There's a class of men who appear trustworthy and honest. These men had come out from the Jerusalem church, were members in good standing of the Jerusalem church but they're really deceivers who will advance their own cause and promote division amongst brethren in the church. So, we've already mentioned wheat and tares. And that happens in the church. And of course, right now each of us should be saying, Oh Lord, please don't let me be a tear. Lord, give me faith in Christ that I may live as wheat in the midst of your people. Now, another thing we need to see here, and this is why I said heresy occurs and reoccurs and reoccurs, and we have to keep dealing with these things is because this heresy had already been settled. And this also brings up the importance of knowing church history and why it's so great to be connected to the confessional church. We have the Westminster Confession of Faith. We have the shorter catechism, the larger catechism. We have the creeds and confessions, and these things have been settled. So many of the things that we, that we face. But here we know that this had been settled already. God spoke in Acts chapter 10. Peter's vision to kill and eat unclean animals. A voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. This is divine revelation to an apostle. And it is one of the difference makers in the Jerusalem council. When they're deliberating on what's going on, they've got this new revelation to work with. Next. We also saw this dealt with after the conversion of Cornelius in chapter 11. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard about the Gentiles, heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him saying, "This has already been a battle in Jerusalem. They said, "You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them." Okay? Now these are these are those who are believers. Those of the circumcision. These, these are not people outside the church. These are people inside the church. And they're called of the circumcision. Now what does Peter do? He explains what happened with Cornelius. He just tells them what God did. And then, in verse 18, when they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So, probably Peter and others were thinking, okay, this is now finally laid to rest. And it also demonstrates to us the real strength of cultural surroundings. The generational momentum that was in place that had to be overcome. And in the future, as we look at the Galatians timeline, we'll talk more about how these things had been settled in certain ways. We'll see Peter had been eating with Gentiles in Antioch. Okay, We read that already this morning. That was one way it was settled. He was living it out in front of them. And we'll see that Paul had already addressed this question in Jerusalem in regard to Titus, a Greek. He took Titus to Jerusalem probably in the Acts 11 visit when the famine occurred. And they didn't require Titus to be circumcised. So all that to say, heresies, difficulties, particularly doctrinal, these things just kind of keep coming. The devil has the same bag of tricks and tries to throw them at us over and over again. So what is the heresy? We've talked about the source of the heresy and how these things occur over and over again. Divisive men. What is the heresy? Here it is. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is a statement of justification. This is a statement of having your sins forgiven. Now, it may also consider the process of salvation, but it certainly includes justification. So these men are claiming that a Gentile cannot become a Christian without first becoming a Jew via keeping the ceremonial law. Now, some of you may not have considered or thought through what the ceremonial law is before. Maybe some listening uh, out there in listening land maybe have not considered what ceremonial law is. The next problem here, well, let me just say this. Two broad categories. This is a terrible lie that destroys, one, the beauty of the new unity between Jew and Gentile found in Christ. But even more importantly, this lie destroys the essence of the gospel itself. And both of these things are addressed when when this heresy is being dealt with. Now, however, in their defense, these men were pressing the Jewish proselyte requirements given in the Sinai covenant that we see in Exodus 12 and first given to Abraham in Genesis 17. I'm going to read those texts to you. This is an example of how we, if we go to Scripture pridefully, we can misuse Scripture. We can misuse truth. Exodus 12:48. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. And then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat it. So there it is. You're an outsider until you're circumcised. And in these laws, this is a commentary from John Gill, these laws and rules concerning those persons that were to eat of the Passover are such as were to be observed in all successive generations to the coming of Christ and were the rather necessary to be given now at that time is what he means because of the mixed multitude who now came up with the children of Israel out of Egypt. So it made sense. It was a part of the ceremonial law that God was giving at that time. Genesis 17, though, can go back further. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. This is God talking to Abraham. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. So see, heretics will often come with Scripture to support their errant position. And it's very likely that these individuals were looking to these scriptures. So just because someone can quote scripture doesn't mean that they are speaking the truth. And this should be a warning to our own souls. Uh, This should be a warning to our own souls. Um, And also to take care as we're listening and learning as well. Now, by destroying what Jesus did, by destroying the need for the ceremonial Old Testament law. And when you hear ceremonial, think restorative. Think restorative law. When you hear ceremonial, think restorative. By destroying the need for this law, the Lord established a new path to unity between Jew and Gentile. And the Lord established a new global community of God that was unavailable under the Old Testament dispensation. Paul details this in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 I want you to listen to this text closely with this controversy in mind and with the idea of the distinction between ceremonial and moral law in mind and seeing the purpose of ceremonial law, restorative law. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So that's the old system. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, that's the Gentiles, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. That word, our, Jew and Gentile. Our peace who has made both, that's Jew and Gentile, has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. What is that? What is that wall? That is a literal wall, a physical wall in the temple that if you were a Gentile and you tried to go beyond that, you could actually face very serious sanctions. That broken down wall represents the entire ceremonial wall. And here's what it says, having abolished in his flesh, uh, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances. Do you hear that? Contained in ordinances. So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we, have, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place in God, of God in the Spirit. And you'll see James brings in the tabernacle uh, metaphor as well in discussing this new age that God is bringing us into, that God brought us into, was bringing them into. So that middle wall of separation is no longer necessary because of the flesh of Christ, His blood his suffering upon the cross, we don't need the old restorative law that pointed to him any longer because he has come. Now, in addition to destroying this beautiful global community created in Christ for Jew and Gentile, this heresy also destroys the essence of the gospel, brothers and sisters, which Paul details in the verses that are immediately preceding this section in Ephesians chapter 2. These things go together. Again, Listen to these verses, considering the conflict of Acts 15. And when we listen later to the arguments made, especially by Peter, we'll see that this is in view. The essence of the gospel is in view here. What is the gospel? And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, and which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So these men are bringing a set of lies that destroys the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, our sin is so great and so intrinsic to our being, as we read in Romans 7, what did Paul say? O wretched man that I am. So intrinsic to our being, this is what it means to be a a child of wrath by nature. All of us. So our sin is so great and so intrinsic to our being that we must consider ourselves as spiritual corpses apart from God's work. We are doomed without God, deserving only His wrath. And any work that you might bring in to offer to someone to somehow deliver themselves, justify themselves, is necessarily contrary to this reality. We are spiritually dead and we cannot bring ourselves back to life by any means. Next, God's rich mercy and great love graciously resurrects our dead souls in Christ. He is the one who does it. Only because of God's sovereign and unmerited grace are we saved from sin and death. God alone saves. We are not participants in our own justification. We are dead corpses that are brought back to life by His gracious hand. And to to lay out something that someone is to do In order to be saved. Is. Contrary. To the essence of the gospel. Next. In his wondrous grace. God gives us. The faith in Christ that we need. In order to receive forgiveness. Righteousness. And salvation. As children of wrath. You and me. Who are dead in sin. Apart from Christ. We cannot generate this faith from ourselves. Nor would we want to, even if we could. We do not have the power, nor do we have the inclination. This defines our sinfulness and the doom of our estate. And to present any work as a work that we must do in order to be saved is contrary to the gospel. And then going on, as we'll look at verse 5, to present something as the path of sanctification that is not a part of the means of grace, the path of sanctification, is going to cause damage and harm to the growth of individual Christians and families and churches. So, I hope that makes sense. This is an attack on the body, the one body of Christ in the earth established in Him by His work on the cross. Jew and Gentile brought together as fellow citizens, fellow family members through Christ. The ceremonial law is no longer a part of that. And it's an attack on the essence of the gospel. We also see, need to see what this heresy is not. This heresy is not... Because in order for us, to, as we're going through this logically, to understand the debate properly, it's essential that we understand the difference between eternal moral law and the transient ceremonial law of the Sinai Covenant. Okay? You are not a libertine or a liberal if you say that the ceremonial law given in the Sinai Covenant was transient. Okay, Nor are you a legalist to say that the moral law of God is eternal and binding upon all men everywhere forever. We have to understand what the debate is and what the debate isn't. So the Mosaic covenant given to Moses at Sinai reiterates and clearly states the eternal moral law we see from Genesis to Revelation in both Old Testament and New Testament. The moral law precedes is Part of and outlasts the Mosaic Covenant. And understanding this provides a lot of insight into a lot of different questions. (coughs) And this is why we love God's law. Right? This is what Paul is loving in chapter 7. When he's loving the law. He's loving the eternal moral law of God. And and even when you read Psalm 119, you can see David in the words he chooses distinguishing between ceremonial and moral law. This Acts 15 conflict is not about whether Gentiles must aim to keep and obey the eternal moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, which we say aloud here at Cornerstone, Sunday after Sunday, because we love God's law. We love God's eternal moral law. And these Ten Commandments, this eternal moral law of God, is then detailed in various case laws in the Old Testament. The Wisdom of Calvin, for example, in the Institutes of Christian Religion. The way he goes through the moral law of God, one commandment at a time, and then goes through the Old Testament and finds the case law that God gave to Moses to help Moses understand the moral law's application to real life. The case laws demonstrate the eternal moral law and how to live it out in life. So the debate is not about that. <clears throat> Both sides were in agreement on the enduring authority and applicability of the eternal moral law of God. So you've got to get that solid in your mind if you're going to understand where this council goes and the decision-making process they're going through because they're not even addressing this question. And if you think they're addressing this question, then you will misunderstand their conclusion. Like many have done in the world today, who have rejected God's eternal moral law as still binding upon us. Next, the Mosaic Covenant contains a set of transient ceremonial, that is, restorative laws that were necessary to follow during that age and that pointed to Christ's atoning work upon the cross. So this ceremonial law is essentially anything that has to do with shedding the blood of animals. Whether it's a location, or the people who are doing it, or the animals themselves. Because that blood is pointing to Christ's atonement. Okay? 1 Corinthians 7.19, I think, is an excellent New Testament scripture that also demonstrates the distinction between ceremonial and moral law. And we're just using words to describe it. Okay? Granted, it may not be exactly used this way in scripture, like the word Trinity. But there are two categories. Listen to Paul. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. So, you can keep the, some category of the commandments of God without going through circumcision. And so his whole point here is, it, my point here in pointing to this scripture is there are two different categories in Paul's mind here, okay? And circumcision is a part of that ceremonial law. Now, we do have ceremonial law principles that persist in today's world. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are both examples of ceremonial law that point to Christ and His cleansing work. So Paul lays out clearly that circumcision is part of a set of laws that are distinct from what Paul calls the commandments. Now, I'm going to read for us these sections of the Westminster Confession of Faith and praise be to God for the clear thinking of these really wise men who gave this to us. You're going to see mentioned here moral law and ceremonial law and distinguished from one another. And it's very, very helpful. God gave to Adam law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling, and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. So the moral law came in at the beginning. This law, after the fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness, and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments, and written in two tables. The first four commandments containing our outward, our, our duty toward God and the other six our duty to man. So you see the moral law began in the garden, clarified at Sinai. Besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age, ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, His graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth divers instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. Next, the moral law does forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof. And that, not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. God the Creator who gave it. Neither does Christ in the Gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. Why am I belaboring this? Because you will not hear this in most corners of Christianity today, sadly. You will have the law of God questioned, granted nothing but skepticism and those who love it and desire to walk in it as those who are legalists. But that is not the case, brothers and sisters. The final section from Westminster Confession of Faith. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, so we don't look to the law of God as a way to justify ourselves and make ourselves clean in God's sight or earn any favor from Him, Yet, with glad hearts, do you agree with this? It is of great use to us as well as to others in that as a rule of life informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly. And this section goes on and lists so many of the benefits and the glories of loving God's moral law and living it out. And there's a lot connected to this when it comes to the civil sphere, which I'm not going to get into today, but maybe I will in the future. And I didn't read that section of the Confession of Faith regarding sundry judicial laws. We can talk about that some other time. But that is also impacted by the flow of this conversation. Politics suffers gravely if we ignore the realities of what really happened at the Jerusalem Council and if we bring in false understandings of what happened at the Jerusalem Council, as does does the rest of life. Okay, next. I know I'm only in verse 1, and you're thinking, is this sermon ever going to end? I'm wondering that myself. Okay. All right, verse 2a. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. So I want us to see that Paul and Barnabas are united together here in their strong public opposition against the false message. There's going to come a time where they're not united over this exact question. But at this point in time, they are. It's hard to know exactly what the order is, but at this point, they're united. This is called no small dissension and dispute. Not just a few points that they argued over, not just for a few minutes, and not without strength and boldness. The word dissension means to take a stand. It's related to the concept of insurrection. Paul and Barnabas stood and they would not move. It was no small stand. They would not budge. I think of Athanasius. I think of Luther and others. They would not not budge. Dispute. Now, the the dissension there gets to the concept of their their courage and, and their boldness to stand and to oppose what was being said. But this idea of disputing is associated with orderly dialogue. It's mutual questioning. It's disputation. It's discussion. It's a willingness to have a conversation with someone even though you're opposing them. So they engaged in no small way with these men willing to go through every angle of back and forth over this issue. But you can see there was this courteousness about these men as they had this conversation but it was very clear they were going to have the conversation and not back down. Henry says, As faithful servants of Christ, they would not see his truths betrayed. They knew that Christ came to free us from the yoke of the ceremonial law and to take down that wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles and unite them both in himself and therefore could not bear to hear of circumcising the Gentile converts when their instructions were only to baptize them. So, note, brothers and sisters, the first response to heresy that troubles and Unsettles souls. Paul and Barnabas act quickly. And they act publicly. With boldness and with courtesy. Both willing to engage in extended and strenuous public conflict with these men. To stop the spread of this devilish message. And again. Instead of avoidance. Instead of anger and rudeness. How does the Antioch church respond? The conflict clearly remains unresolved. The two sides have not gone off their positions. So they, de- they determine that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. This is noteworthy. And it brings us into conversation and consideration of the regional church. Even after extensive public disputation, neither side would change. and So the church at Antioch needed to decide. They had a decision to make. Now, it's worth pausing here and seeing that Paul does not engage his apostolic authority in this decision at Antioch. He knows the correct answer. And as an apostle of Christ, as evidenced by the letter, the scripture, that he writes to the Galatian churches in the context of this controversy, and it appears very likely he wrote the letter to the Galatians before the Jerusalem Council decree was given. And so he didn't wait He knew that the southern Galatian churches were being troubled and their souls were being unsettled, and he knew he didn't have to wait. But in this situation, he understands the broader need of the church of God. So, those churches over there, Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, where he was threatened and run off and almost killed, he loves these people. So, we'll look at the connection between this section and the book of Galatians next week. We'll look at it more closely. Next, note here. The church at Antioch had the jurisdictional authority to firmly decide locally on this question at this time. They didn't have to call out to Jerusalem to get the answer. And it seems clear that they understood the right answer, but instead they chose to engage with the church at Jerusalem instead of calling out their own answer at this time. Right? See, they had choices. These were wise local leaders. So, they, call for, they go to Jerusalem. Well, why would they do that? Well, first of all, the dispute involved members of the church from Jerusalem. These are church members from Jerusalem who've come there. Next, they had to have wondered, did this message come from James or anyone at the Jerusalem church? At this point in time, they're hearing something from these people, but did it come from James? Did it come from someone at the Jerusalem church? They needed more information. What if Antioch and Jerusalem churches ruled differently? What if they came to different conclusions? Now, we know that both of them walking with the Lord are going to come to the same substantive decision. But there's other ways, other details, other matters, other ways that it could have been done according to wisdom. And they wanted to do that together. Next, the confused Jewish believers would be less concerned about bias from the mostly Jewish Jerusalem church. So the ruling from Jerusalem would be more influential for the church at large. You can see the Antioch, the leaders there, they're considering, and Paul and Barnabas, they're considering the well-being of the church at large. They know they've been unable to put this thing to rest already. And they're trying to, for once and all, put this to rest. Next, the Antioch church is humble, looking to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, even choosing to submit to this joint council within the context of gospel faithfulness. They're not going to submit to an unbiblical, anti-gospel decision, but they're submitting to the process, the, the details of how the decision is made and what the letter itself would say, the way it would be communicated. They're humble. And the collaboration, you have to think, would guard local global church unity, and strengthen global church activity together. So you can see they didn't have to submit themselves to Jerusalem. They could have ruled. They could have said, you're out of order. You go back to Jerusalem. Right? They could have done that, but they didn't. They saw the broader implications of this difficulty and they engaged with the regional church. So I do think herein we see the Old Testament roots of Presbyterianism, which I'll try to get into it at some point in the future without being too lengthy on that. The the big picture there is any New Testament doctrine that we claim to be true is going to at least have its roots revealed in the Old Testament. In other words, we're not going to find anything that's absolutely, completely new in the New Testament that has never been referenced in any way at all in the Old Testament. So herein we see the Old Testament roots of Presbyterianism sprouting forth in these New Testament church actions. The connectionalism, the regional working together of churches and of authoritative bodies in the Old Testament, of elders working together. And we'll consider this further as we go through Acts 15. Next, we see encouragement during conflict. Um, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. This is a simple concept, and of course, since I'm rushed, It's easy to just go past it, but it's a very important concept. They are encouraged and they are encouragers even in the midst of this difficult time. They've been chosen and sent out by the church at Antioch and the council at Jerusalem will therefore include the words and actions of these delegates. And as they're going there, they are able to encourage the saints in Phoenicia and Samaria about what God, what God had done through them, which would have included their first missionary journey. Now, you have to wonder, how did Paul get the message to the Galatian church? You know, he sailed from this coast on his first missionary... Well, he sailed from somewhere along this coast, right? We know that in his missionary journey. I forget exactly where. And so he probably could have sent this letter from a port as they were traveling. We need to recall Peter and Philip ministering in this region in Samaria and that the church was growing in that region. So, listen, brothers and sisters, even in the midst of painful conflict, the Lord is advancing His kingdom. Even in the midst of painful conflict, as we rest in Christ, in His Spirit, in His Word, in His church, in His way of doing things, we can be at peace, and we can be encouragers, and we can be encouraged. Okay? The way we respond to these things when they hit us helps us understand ourselves better. So the Jerusalem church receives and hears the Antioch delegates. When they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders and they reported all things that God had done with them. So we need to see here the brotherly love that these churches have for one another. And that's really important. Okay? Uh, They they brought them in. The whole church, the apostles, elders, all of them received them. And that word received, you know, it was with gladness. So... Not only individuals, but also churches can be separated from one another. There was a chance that these churches, two churches, could have ended up going different paths and not loving one another and working together. But the Lord displays here His love and power toward His body and the earth by maintaining warmth among these early Christians from different churches. And not just different churches, but a Jewish church and a Gentile church. And especially these Jewish Christians who are coming into the church They had just lifetime generations of just this repugnance and revulsion towards Gentiles. They bring them in. So the cultural differences between the Jewish church of Jerusalem and the Gentile church of Antioch, you have to know it was vast. We could spend days talking about the differences. The gospel alone could bring such differing people together. So it gives us hope. It's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. I want us to see how the Lord begins now in this section to prepare the confused Jewish believers to set aside their misguided notions about the ceremonial law. Why? Because they're hearing all things that God had done. These Jews, maybe some of them had not heard it firsthand. Maybe they weren't there when Peter spoke before. But the entire church is hearing of all the glorious deeds of God amongst the Gentiles, giving abundant evidence against the false message. Gentiles were given the Spirit, y'all without becoming Jews. And that was the message that they needed to hear and, and they told them this message. And in, this, in the setting of this really good news, look at what God has done. The Pharisees stand up and they say, wow, look at what God has done. Nope. <laughs> they are stuck. They are stuck. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So you can see how in this setting... It, it, the flow of it suggests that they're saying, yeah, but this is how they're sanctified. In order for them to be sanctified, in order for them to grow, they need to become Jews. Right? It, it appears as though the first comment is about salvation, justification, and the second is about sanctification. So instead of rejoicing and changing their position, these confused Jews up, rise up and claim the new Gentile believers must be circumcised and keep the ceremonial law. In either case, whatever they meant, this is marring the path of following Christ. This false teaching. And we know the Pharisees were the most fastidious about all the angles of the ceremonial law. That was their speciality. Commentary says that it is very hard for men suddenly to get clear of their prejudices. Those that had been Pharisees, even after they became Christians, retained some of the old leaven. In their opinion, it was needful. And for their parts, they would not converse with them unless they submitted to it. So these Pharisees were still trying to bring the ceremonial law practices into Christianity. So what happens next? The dispute has arrived in Jerusalem and the apostles and the elders convened the council. Verse 6, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. You know, they had a choice. They didn't have to. They could have sent it back to Antioch and say, look, you guys decide there what you want to do. We'll decide here what we want to do. But they didn't do that. They received the delegates, and they had a council together. So it comes into session to consider this question. And so we've seen how this council came into existence. We've seen its origins. It did not call itself into existence without the request or the input of the Antioch church. It was a collaborative effort between these two churches. It is deliberating before God to find His will via orderly debate, discussion, and decision-making. This is the pattern that was set forth for all the subsequent church councils. They all looked to this council, to the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council, to guide them in how to come together as a church to face heresies. And that's what was done throughout the early centuries of the Christian church. The apostles are not acting as apostles in this debate, but rather as elders. No direct revelation to the apostles is recorded as part of this council. And that's important because when we look back on this council, we do see it as one important example of broader pres- what we call broader Presbyterianism in the earth. If you think it's just apostolic authority on display, you'll interpret it differently. I don't know how uh, the independent churches interpret this uh, other than to try to say that it was just two churches working together and that it wasn't actually one one, uh, regional church council making a decision together. So brothers and sisters, uh, with this in mind, I hope that we can see a few important things that I've already listed to you first of all, if we are not resting in Christ and in His Word and in His Spirit and in His sovereign plan for His church, resting in His church, then we'll be unprepared for these events when they occur. We'll be surprised. We'll be taken aback. And I can tell you in my life I have been guilty of this because this has occurred in my life. I have had experiences in my life like division, like conflict that have taken me by surprise. Okay? And in some sense, it's unavoidable that there might be some surprise in the details. But we shouldn't be surprised that division and conflict occur in God's church. We are sinners, and the devil will always be coming against us. Another thing that's really important to emphasize from this text is that the church is a real thing. The dignity of the visible church of God in the earth. And this is really important in our individualistic, autonomous age. The church is a real thing. And we're not making claims like Roman Catholics make or like Eastern Orthodoxy makes, that the church is of equal authority to the Scripture. But the church does have a role to play This is the church in action in Acts 15. This is not divine revelation directly to apostles in action. This is the church demonstrating what it means to be the pillar and ground of truth. And the church is still that today. And there are still grand dogmas that the church needs to come together around and establish in the earth. There are still grand heresies that have yet to be addressed in the history of the world there are still heresies remaining that have not been answered and established by the historic church. The key of which is the law of God and its application to the world. Don't be weak. Don't be rude. When when heresies are in play, um, and it of course it takes wisdom to know what is heresy worth Opposing. But if conflict is necessary, don't be weak, don't be avoidant, and let the root the, the the weeds spread. And also don't be rude. When it's addressed, be courteous, be kind, be loving, be clear. Do you know the gospel? Do you understand the gospel? Have you studied your scriptures to understand the gospel? Do you understand the distinction between moral and ceremonial law? It's an important distinction for us to to understand from our from the scriptures. Do you understand the importance of not being an independent local assembly and being connected in meaningful ways, in covenantal ways with other local assemblies? This is why we're independent why we're not independent. This is why we're presbyterian. And how I rejoice to be Presbyterian. Next, hey, don't be discouraged. Don't despair. The Lord brings difficulties to His church to bless us, to be approved, to repent if we're not the ones that are approved in that conflict, in that controversy, and to grow us to strengthen us. Note the strengthening of the church in Acts 6. Note the strengthening of the church in Acts 15 as we go through this. Brothers and sisters, let us fast and pray to humble ourselves before the Lord so that we would be the kind of people who read and handle His Word properly. May we rely upon Christ and His Word and His Spirit and His church And grow up in Him together. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father. Lord we. As we consider this text. We do look to you Lord Jesus Christ. Your love for your bride. How you have given us your word O God. And preserved your word for us. And how you pour out your spirit upon us. Your bride. Throughout the ages. And how you bless us. To be members of your church. And how you bless us with your church. Oh God bless us we pray. Not to rely upon ourselves. Not to be led about by our flesh. Lord not to be ignorant of your word and of your gospel. Lord not to be weak. Not to be rude. Oh Father bless us to be like Christ. As we go through this world dealing with. With our own sin and the difficulties of this sinful world in ways that demonstrate Your glory and bring forth Your victory in the earth. How we rejoice that You are seated at the Father's right hand and that, O oh, Father, You are placing all the enemies of Christ under His feet. We praise You, Lord, in Jesus' name.